This series is kind of along the lines of me trying to give some encouragement to you. Most of you who are here in the room know that my wife and I are planning to relocate to the eastern part of the state. She's taken a job with Taylor University. That means I have to leave, and that means the church is going to go through a process of transition. And um, I know that that kind of thing is really kind of upsetting to churches in general. It's the sort of thing that can cause people in a church to stop going to that church and look for somewhere else. Because if we're just honest with each other, a large percentage of the motivation people have when it comes to church is because of their connection or affinity with whatever is happening on the stage of that church. It's a sad state of affairs that we live in in this world that we have turned what Jesus created as a community thing into a sort of observational thing. And so for the last week and this week, what I wanted to do is I wanted to try to redirect your attention a little bit away from what happens up here on the stage, even though I'm using the stage to do that. I recognize the irony, but I just wanted to say that there's a thing that God wants to do in our hearts, in your heart, and in the hearts of this church that goes far beyond any kind of pastoral transition. And so last week, what I did is I took you into that chapter, Psalm 23. It's the most famous opening verse in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or the way it is in modern translations, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. It's an incredible principle. But I wanted to share with you something that I didn't tell you last week, but something that was on my heart last week and something I want to make explicit today. The word that we use for my job, is the word pastor. The problem is pastor is not an English word. Pastor is a word that comes from Latin. And in Latin, the word pastor means shepherd. The fascinating thing about this whole entire concept of looking at Psalm 23 is that the word we use for pastor is literally the word shepherd. And the fascinating thing about that is that throughout the entirety of the New Testament, the word pastor doesn't show up once because there is no office called pastor in the Bible. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 is the only time the word pastor shows up in the New International Version. And that is because the editors of the New International Version, the translators of the New International Version in Ephesians 4 decided that when Paul said that there were four jobs that Jesus gave people, and he mentions them, apostle and prophet and teacher and pastor, they decided to translate that as pastor because shepherd is too generic of a word. They decided to translate that as pastor. And that's the reason why today pastor gets this idea with it, that it is a job, that it is a a thing that we hire people to do. And then we give them that label and we call them pastor. But aside from that one translation, every other time the word shows up in the New Testament, we translate it shepherd. In fact, When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he uses the same word that in Ephesians 4 says, Jesus gave pastors to us, because it's just a translation choice. The word is shepherd. And so in the Old Testament, in Psalm 23, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, we should recognize that maybe that still applies even today, to today. 
Let me show you in 1 Peter chapter 5 what happens here. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is writing to the leaders of the church that he cares about. And he says these words, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. The whole idea of a shepherd is that sheep need care. And so Peter is writing to the other leaders in the church, and he says, I want you to be shepherds. He never even calls them pastors. He says, I want you to be shepherds. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to make a translation choice with you, a translation decision with you, similar to the translation decision of the NIV. I'm not as scholarly as the people who translated the NIV, and so my translation that I'm about to give you is wrong. Let's admit that. It's wrong, but it communicates something that I want you to hear out loud. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my pastor. I lack nothing. It is so difficult for us who are so hungry for earthly leadership to put our full trust in one we cannot see, to put our full trust in one we cannot touch. It is so difficult for us to say, I need an earthly leader, but I will accept a heavenly leader. Our hearts are calling us to the earthly forms of power, and Jesus himself would say, no, no, hang on a second here. Yes, I'm going to give you earthly shepherds, but I don't want you to hang on to the earthly shepherds. This goes all the way back into the Old Testament. The number one shepherd of the entire Bible other than Jesus is David, the one who writes, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my pastor. I want us, I want me, I want you, I want all of us to be the kind of people who are so deeply, so deeply aligned with Jesus directly that we appreciate the leaders he gives us in this world, but we do not rely on them. We rely on him, his word, his spirit at work in us, and we rely on the community of faith around us, not any individual particular leader that we might want to give our allegiance to. I'm going to come back to that thought in just a little bit, but right now I want you to hear the words of Jesus because the big question, the big question is how do I trust in a shepherd I cannot see? How do I trust in a shepherd I cannot touch? How do I experience Jesus that way? And even though the scripture promises that with Jesus as our shepherd, there's nothing that we lack, and even though scripture promises us that we cannot worry, God will provide, Jesus himself says that, even though there's all that, we still have this heart longing for something on the earth. And so I want to help you decouple that. I want to help you just get a stronger sense of trusting Jesus directly. And it starts by hearing his own words. In John chapter 10, I'm taking a selection of verses. We're going to do 10 through 11. Then we're going to do 14 through 16. And then we're going to jump ahead to verse 27. And so if you're using our app, you tap that button, it will open up the whole chapter. You can see it all in context. But here I'm just going to read it for you. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is Jesus declaring in very clear words that he is the shepherd, that he is the good shepherd. And I want us to embrace that. And so I want you to write this down. If you're taking notes or if you're tapping it in your phone, maybe send yourself a text message, schedule an email to come back to you Thursday morning, and just put this thing in there. Jesus is my shepherd. Jesus is my shepherd. There's so many different people we could follow, so many different desires that we would have where we want someone else to meet those desires, but Jesus is my shepherd. And I want us to fully and completely embrace that idea. And so I think what I should do is kind of walk you through these different passages that we just read, these different verses where Jesus describes his own activity of being the shepherd so that I can help you and me understand better how to live this way. What does it mean to live like Jesus is my shepherd? Let's start with the early verses, verses 10 through 11. John 10, verses 10 through 11, he said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You saw that in the rest of the verses. Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. And the reason he lays down his life for us is this metaphor where Jesus describes a sheep pen. And the way a sheep pen would work is that there would be sort of a border, kind of a barricade fence of some sort, and then all the sheep would be brought into it, and there would be a gate. But rather than having a mechanical gate, oftentimes the gate was just sort of a tunnel or hole, or maybe just an archway, or maybe just a gap between the fence. And what the shepherd would do at night is the shepherd would literally lie down in that gap so that anyone who wanted to come and steal a sheep or do anything to the sheep would have to cross over that shepherd. In fact, the shepherd, you would ha- he was literally laying down his life for the sheep. And then if anyone wanted to get at the sheep, they would kill the shepherd and then they could go after the sheep. And so the idea of a shepherd dying is not a reassuring thing to the sheep. But Jesus flips that all around. And he says, no, I am laying down my life so that I can give you life to the full. And he repeats that over and over in this context. And so I want to let you know the first step of making Jesus your shepherd is this phrase. My life is found in receiving his life. My life is found in receiving his life. Now, there are lots of ways to do that. When I was a kid, the standard practice was to pray a prayer and quote-unquote ask Jesus into your heart. Because as a kid, you didn't really understand a whole bunch of things, and so it was easy for someone to say, ask Jesus into your heart, and then they could say that Jesus is now living inside of you. And because I didn't see Jesus for real out there, I couldn't touch him or see him or anything, then he was already sort of a, a thing that I was imagining, and therefore I could also imagine him in my heart. And it was easy as metaphors go to explain to a kid. 
For you and for me, we have all kinds of weird other skepticisms about that. And so I like to use the word receiving because that requires me to be open. That requires me to say, my life is now vulnerable before him. My life is now open to him. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to receive his life as my life. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. I mean, what does it mean? I I would say, okay, let's start with the little children one and just spend some time praying and say, Jesus, I want to have your life in my life. Jesus, I don't want to live my life solo anymore. I want to lay my life aside and receive the life that you have for me. Jesus, I'm sorry for all the things that I've done to mess up my own life. I'm sorry for the the directions that I've taken that weren't in your direction. You've promised me life, and I just want to receive it. So I'm going to open myself up. And I would say that's the sort of prayer that you want to pray once, and then another time, and then another time, and then every day, and then pretty much every other minute. And be like, Jesus, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set my life to the side. And I want to receive the life that you give to me. The New Testament is filled with the promise of eternal life. And we are so addicted to present life. There's so many places in my life where a thing will happen that changes my today. And that messes me up. I get irritated I get kind of snide. I start making mean jokes. I try to get other people to do things for me. I try to manipulate other people. I lie to other people. I try to act aggressive to other people. This last week, we were out at our house in Upland, and we're trying to you know, do some painting and get it set for us to move into it. And we're out there, and Jen and I walk into the house, and it's cold. And I'm thinking, okay, so it's cold. And I walk over to the thermostat, and the thermostat says 43 degrees. And I'm like, okay, it's not just cold. The thermostat proves it's 43 degrees. And so then I push some buttons on the thermostat and I get one button and now the the heater kicks on. And I'm like, wait a minute, why did it just now kick on and it didn't kick on before? And I'm pushing a few other buttons and I go and I look at the furnace and I see a little thing is glowing for a little while and then nothing happens and the glowing thing turns off. And it doesn't take me that long because I'm familiar enough with this stuff to realize my gas has been shut off. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? My gas has been shut off. And so back in August, I contacted Vectrin on their website and I tried to transmit service over to our name and do all these other things. Well, for whatever reason, it never went through. It never got completed. And so we had heat last week and apparently the guy paying for the heat decided he didn't want to pay for it anymore. And so they shut it off in the week between. So when we got there just, you know, on Friday night, it's 40 degrees in the house. And I'm freaking out. I'm worried about pipes freezing. It's going to be like 10 degrees that night. Jen and I go out to Walmart. We buy a whole bunch of space heaters. They're running in the house right now. I'm freaked out. We're going to drive out there this afternoon to make sure the place hasn't burned down. But, you know, I'm just, it's one of these things where it's just changing everything about my life. 
In fact, I called Vectrin, which out there is called Centerpoint Energy, or maybe it is here. I don't know. But I called the gas company, and I'm like, can you please send someone out to fix this thing? And I talked to two or three different customer service people, and they're like, well, we can set up new service, and someone can be there on Monday. And I turn in to one of these people where I'm just like trying to, I'm grabbing at any straw. I try the angle of being mean. I try the angle of being nice. I try the angle of being, you know, uh, almost crying. I try every angle I possibly can, and every, every 30 seconds or so, I'm asking myself, is this what Jesus would do? I'm still doing it anyway. And it's like, and it's just, you know, it turns me into, a, into a, such a terrible person. And Jesus has promised us eternal life for crying out loud. I'm, we're so addicted to the here and the now. And so even in moments like that, that's one of those moments where you're like, Jesus, I want to receive your life and not be so uptight about my control over this life. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. It's fascinating. In Philippians chapter 4, 4, he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Because you tell someone else they should be happy and they're going to get more mad. And so he says, no, I'm going to repeat myself. Rejoice. Because here's the deal. A relationship with Jesus is a relationship where you should have the weights lifted off your shoulder. Not because there are no problems, but because you now have bigger perspective. Now you realize that he's in charge. Now you realize there's an eternity ahead of you. And so I can rejoice. Do you realize the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of Philippians, he was literally wearing chains at the moment In fact, he was probably dictating the letter to someone else who wasn't in chains because that person could write it down. Paul usually dictated his letters anyway, but he was literally wearing chains as the book was being written. And what's even more is he's writing to the people in Philippi. And if you remember the story, when Paul went to Philippi to bring the message of Jesus to them, he was arrested. And he was thrown in jail with a guy named Silas. And in jail, before he was put in jail, they whipped him to a bloody pulp. They called it flogging back then. Then they put him in jail. And he and Silas all night long are singing songs of praise to Jesus, who has considered them worthy enough to suffer for his name. And while they're singing songs, a miraculous earthquake comes that somehow opens the doors of the jail, opens the doors of all the cells, makes all the chains fall off of their wrists, and the the prison guard rushes in. He's freaking out because he's going to lose his life because he's just lost all the prisoners. And Paul's like, no, we're still here. You arrested us. We're here. What's the point of that? I mean, the chains aren't what's holding me here. The gate's not what's holding me here. We're still here. And the guy says, what must I do to be saved? And there's a part of me that thinks he's asking, what do I have to do to convince you guys to do something for me so that I don't get killed tomorrow morning when the magistrate finds out that the whole place is opened up and it's all unlocked? What do I do to be saved? And Paul's like, no, I'm going to give you a bigger salvation. And he shares the message of Jesus with this guy. His whole family becomes Christians. And they're the ones who are living in Philippi. Maybe the church is meeting in their house. And Paul is writing from jail to the church where the jailer previously, his previous jailer had been. And he says to them, listen, rejoice. No, maybe you didn't hear me. Rejoice in the Lord. 
When I was in high school, my friends and I, I think I told you the story, my friends and I ran a Bible study. We met every Saturday morning at 7.30. So getting teenagers on Saturday to come out to a Bible study at 7.30, we decided to do it because we only wanted the hardcore Christians. And it ended up being this amazing thing where like 40 kids or so would come out and we had an awesome time eating breakfast and sharing stories and studying the Bible and praying with each other and singing songs. At the end of my three years of doing that, when I was a senior and I was leaving for college, we had another one of our gatherings and a girl in that gathering, I can't remember how she said it to me, whether it was in person or through a card or whatever, but she said to me, Jeff, I just want to thank you for this Bible study over the past couple of years because I never knew Christians could be so fun. And I'm thinking to myself, we have the life of Jesus. Let's receive it. Instead of all of our stresses and strains and worries and fears, we have the life of Jesus. You know, this is why we do church. This is why we gather together for church. We gather to celebrate the life of Jesus and to invite other people in, to invite other people to experience this life with us. That's the whole point of church. Well, there's a couple other points I'll get to in, in a while too, but this is, this is one of the first points of the reason we get together. We don't get together primarily to hear someone yell at us or lecture us or even sing in front of us. We get together because we're trying to celebrate Jesus and celebrate the life that he gives us and to do it in some sort of location where we can invite other people to join us. That's the point. But wait, there's more. John chapter 10. Let's go back there. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 27. I love this. It says this, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And this leads us to the second thing that we need to do to welcome the shepherdship of Jesus into our lives. We need to say, I hear and I understand and I follow his voice. Now let's just be clear. There are a lot of voices you could follow. You could go to Twitter and you could hear voices that you want to hear and voices you don't want to hear. You could turn on the news and you could hear voices that you want to hear and voices you don't want to hear. If you listen enough to one of the programs and just, you know, exposure therapy you, yourself into one of these programs, it might actually change the way you think about some things. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. But there's so many voices out there you could listen to. And the reason we listen to all those voices is because we haven't either heard or understood or are following the voice of the shepherd, Jesus' voice. And you're like, well, how do I do that? Listen, I was raised in the church. I can't tell you the number of times some missionary or some other person, some person in the church, uh, would stand up in front of all of us and give us a testimony, share with us their, their story of faith. And I cannot count all the times where someone on the stage would say something that sounded like this. Well, my life was going in this direction, and God just told me I needed to do this thing. And I'm like, explain. Please give me more information on what the phrase God told me is supposed to mean. Because I want to know that. Listen, when Moses stood in front of the burning bush and then he told that story, he can be like God told me and someone would be like, wait, explain this more. And he's like, no, seriously. Bush on fire, noises coming from the bush, voices coming to me, freaked out Moses, listening and talking back and forth. Or later on, when he's in the tabernacle, he can say, listen, glorious cloud-like something or other, speaking to me, me talking back, Joshua outside hearing it. 
He can say things like that. I want someone to say things like that to me when they say God spoke to me. Like, give me more information. Tell me exactly the process. Because if I replicate your process, I might be able to replicate your results. And I would love to have those results. But the problem is, that's not the way God speaks, usually. In the history of the world, in the history of the world, hearing the voice of God in some dramatic, miraculous fashion is incredibly rare. But Jesus gave us a promise, a fascinating promise, a promise for people who were seeing Jesus in front of them and were worried that he just told them he was leaving. And now that he has told them that he is leaving, they're worried, how will I ever hear your voice again? How will I ever understand your voice again? What in the world does it mean to follow a Jesus who just tells me he's leaving and I can't go with him? Well, in John chapter 14, we read these words. John chapter 14, 25 through 27. It says, all this I've spoken while still with you. This is Jesus talking to them. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And check this out. We have a method. And will remind you of everything I've said to you. He will teach you all things, but then Jesus tells them how. He's going to remind them of all the things Jesus has said to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus says, you don't have to worry about a thing. I'm going to send you my spirit. And when I send you my spirit, he's going to teach you everything you need to know. How, Jesus? He's going to remind you of everything I told you. And this is brilliant. This is amazing because this is what actually happened. In just a few days after this, just about 40 days after this, the Holy Spirit shows up in miraculous fashion. He comes, he settles down on the, on the new followers of Jesus as they're all together in this room. And there's this, this visual component. There's a flame of fire above everybody's head, which reminds them of Moses and the burning bush. There's this visual component. And then they begin talking, but for some reason, people outside the building who don't speak that language who don't speak the normal Greek language and do speak a different language, hear these people talking in languages that they understand. And it's like everybody who doesn't matter what language you're speaking, you can all understand each other. Some miraculous thing which undoes what the Tower of Babel did way, way, way back in the early parts of Genesis. And so now we've got these two pieces of evidence that draw us into the Old Testament and Peter begins to stand up and talk to people and he doesn't know what he's saying. So what does he do? He quotes from the Old Testament. And he's like, okay, let me tell you what Joel said. Joel said this. And then he says, now let me tell you what Jesus said. And Jesus said this. Peter doesn't make anything up on his own. He just quotes other people. That's how the Holy Spirit works. Now, granted, there are some times when God is going to speak to someone in a dramatically special, miraculous way. That happens, and I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. But the primary thing for us is to realize that when the Holy Spirit speaks, he uses the words that have already been spoken. Take out, look, I mean, look at Romans chapter 15 and see what Paul says here. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The Apostle Paul is trying to let us know that this is how the Spirit works. The Spirit speaks to someone. 
someone writes it down. Everyone else who reads it hears the Spirit because they have heard the words. It's a pretty brilliant system. It's pretty simple. One person hears, is faithful to write, and everybody else gets to hear the same voice by just reading. It's brilliant. That's not the only way the Spirit speaks to us. And so I'm going to give you a, a threefold mechanism to think about how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. It goes like this. We hear his voice by the Spirit. We hear the voice of the shepherd by the work of the Spirit. And he works in these three ways. Word, whispers, and others. When I say word, I mean an actual word that is either the text of Scripture or voice from heaven. Sometimes a vision from an angel or a dream. Those things can happen too. But the direct word of God sometimes shows up through one of these dramatic, miraculous means, but always shows up through the written word. So the word is number one. Secondly, whispers. The Spirit can speak into your heart through whispers. And that's what I think most people mean when they say, God told me. What they're saying is, I read something in Scripture, and I had this thought. And it wasn't my thought. I don't think it was my thought. I'm going to label it as a God thought, and then I'm going to claim that God spoke to me. But it was that I heard this inkling, this whispering in my heart, this sort of thought that came up into me. And I prefer, now maybe it's valid to say God spoke to me in those times, but I prefer in those times to say, I had this thought or I had this whisper or inclination or whatever. I'm going to give the Holy Spirit credit if on later evaluation it's determined that came from the Holy Spirit. But I'm not going to give the Holy Spirit credit until after on later determination we have tested that voice and have determined that it is a voice from the Holy Spirit. I'm going to wait until the testing happens. But the word is clear. Whispers can happen. And the testing, I think, frequently comes with others with others, where you're actually like, okay, I'm going to share with you the thing that's on my heart. I'm going to tell you the things I've been reading in scripture, and I'm going to share with you the things that are on my heart. And now I want you to help me evaluate what is going on here. Listen, this is a, this is a terribly difficult process to go through because it requires us to submit ourselves to other people who haven't heard the same whisper. And it requires us to submit ourselves to other people who weren't in the room with us and inside our head when we saw what we saw in the Bible. It requires us to be in a community relationship of trust with someone else. And that's a difficult thing for us to do. But if I want Jesus to be my shepherd, I need to trust his spirit. And it just so happens that he gave his spirit to everyone who follows him. And so if I'm going to trust his spirit, I can trust the one whisper I've had, but maybe I should also trust the hundred whispers that the spirit has given to other people around me. And perhaps the Spirit is at work in all those people. Now listen, i got to admit to you, over the last three years, this particular principle has wrecked me because I have, been, I have been floating and swimming in a world of people that from my perspective are not listening to the Spirit. 
from my perspective, are listening to other voices. They're listening to the voices of the culture. They're listening to the voices of Fox News or CNN, whichever platform it is they're paying attention to. And I've been, I've been abundantly frustrated because I'm trying to discern the voice of the Spirit in my own heart, while at the same time not trusting anyone around me to be hearing the voice of the Spirit in their life either. It's been difficult for all of us. It's been rough for all of us. And so one of the reasons I'm talking about this today is that I implore you to join me in being people who let the, the good shepherd be our shepherd. I'm imploring you to be people with me who are going to allow these whispers in the word and the voice of others to collectively be our thing and not the world around us. I do want to share with you just a couple examples from my own life of how this has been true. The first example is the most recent example. You guys know that we're transitioning away from here, which means I have to figure out what to do with my life. You know, what do you, what do, you do when you grow up? Um, usually pastors go from pastor job to pastor job and the spouse follows them. And this is, this is backwards. This is weird. And so I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing with my life next. I'm just, you know, moving along. I've got a couple job opening possibilities. But the one big question on my mind is, should I go back to school and get my own doctorate degree? Should I get a PhD or a doctor of ministry or something like that? That's the next thing to do. And it would be required if I wanted to teach in a school. And so back in August, I applied. I applied to a school out in California called Biola. Um, it, used to be, it used to stand for Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And then they just changed it to name the school the acronym. So now it's Biola. And uh, they have a seminary there called Talbot. And so I applied back in August. And I got all the way through the application process, except for two things. One, they wanted references, and we weren't telling anyone that we were leaving. So that was weird. And number two, they wanted money. They wanted $65 as an application fee. And I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen to us financially. I don't know if I really want to do this. I don't know if it's worth $65 for me to apply to this thing. And so I just didn't. I just left it alone and I ignored it and I moved along and I just started paying attention to other things and looking for other opportunities. And then three weeks ago, I kid you not, three weeks ago, a podcast that I listened to started advertising for Talbot Seminary. And they were like, do you want to take your ministry to the next level? Do you want to study God's word in a, in a community of people who are going to help you, blah, blah, blah? And it's just like an advertisement for Talbot. And I'm like, oh my goodness, is this a whisper coming through the voice of a podcast? I don't know. So I ignore it. I just kind of move on. And then I get an email that says, the deadline is coming up for your application. And I'm like, well, all right, I'm just going to slide past this deadline. And if God wants me to do it sometime later on in the future, he'll give me a sign. And then I get an email, an email from the school that says, hey, listen, we noticed you didn't finish your application. If you apply now, we're extending the deadline to include you and we'll waive your application fee. And I'm like, ah, oh, crud, now I have to finish applying. Now, I don't know. Can I label that as the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to me through podcasts and emails? I don't know. But I will tell you this. Maybe. Because that is the way God has worked in my life many, many other times. And so I'm going to give God the praise and the credit for sliding me into an application process that I still don't know if I'm going to get in. I still don't know if it's going to work out for us to do this thing. Graduate school is expensive. I don't know all those answers. But I'm willing to just walk this process. A similar thing happened back when we were trying to decide what to do when we were up in Chicago. 
Jen and I went to this place called an assessment center. And in the assessment center, they were evaluating us to find out what kind of pastor our family should be. And the end result was they said, you should start a church. And so that's why we moved down here to Lafayette to start this church ages ago. And it was in the assessment center that we were trying to discern that. And basically one morning, Jen and I were praying and we're like, do you think God wants us to do this church planning thing? And Jen was like, I think he does. And I was like, I think he does too. And there was a moment in that morning where I think I had some sort of a whisper of a thought. But then later that day, we're sitting in a room and across from us, this other guy says, listen, we've all been praying for you all week long. And we think you guys need to go plant a church. And so we had studied the word, we had heard the whisper, and what was confirmed by people around us. And so we did. And I don't know what it's going to be like for you, but I want you to involve all three. It makes no sense for you to claim you've heard the whisper of God if you haven't heard the word of God. It makes no sense for you to claim that someone else is giving you wisdom when that person doesn't know the word of God. It makes no sense for any of us to think that we have heard God speak to us if we haven't heard the words God uses when he speaks. And so we study the word. We understand it. We listen to it. We commune with it. And then we can follow it. But I want to give you this thought. This is the reason we come to church. We come to church, we gather to hear and to understand that voice. To hear and understand that voice. What does the word actually say so that when I get the whisper, I'll be able to understand it as him? But that's not enough either, because as I said, after you've heard that voice, whether it's through the word or the whisper or the others or the combination of all three, after you've heard the voice, you have to do it. You are not a sheep unless you are following the shepherd. We belong to him if we follow him. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep follow me. If you're not following, you're not his. You don't belong to him. Let me show you this passage from John chapter 15, verse 14 says this. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Pretty straightforward, right? But he doesn't call me servant, even though he's telling, it's, telling me it's a command. He's giving me a command, but he's calling me a friend. That is a weird relationship, don't you think? He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. It's so brilliant. He's like, I'm your friend. We're on the same team, but I'm gonna give you a command. And the command is, love each other because I'm your friend and we're on the same team. Love each other. And if you're on this team with me, my dad's going to do whatever you want because we're on this team together and we're going to bear fruit together and we're going to do something remarkable in this world. The world is going to transform because of us. The Father himself is going to empower us to do that. So I'm going to give you a command, but we're on the same team together love each other. It's an amazing thing. 
And it's so simple, too. Jesus, if you want to follow him, you got to obey him, and you have to imitate him. Both. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to do what he does. Now, this idea of following Jesus is so difficult for us because, like I said, we want to follow someone we can see. We want to follow someone we can hear. We want to follow someone who's going to be aggressive and who's going to get our thing done. It doesn't matter who you are. You love to love the superhero who's going to get your thing done. Some of us want to be the superhero who gets our thing done, but we also love the other superhero who's going to get our things done. And it's so tempting to just fall in line with that human being who promises us influence and power. It's so tempting for us to do that. But we have to be people who recognize we're following a different shepherd. We're going to follow Jesus. I want to encourage you to hold the truth and be kind. But that's not all. Let me show you another thing from John chapter 10, perhaps the most uncomfortable thing that we're going to look at today. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Pause for a moment. You're standing in front of Jesus, and he's talking, and he's telling you these wonderful things. He says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they know my voice, and you're in front of Jesus, and you're just nodding, and you're like, I'm in the crew. I'm on the team. I'm hearing your voice, Jesus. I'm following you, Jesus. I'm so glad that I'm in this group. I get to experience Jesus. This is so wonderful. He's talking to me. Man, this is great. I'm one of Jesus's people. And then he says, I got other people too. And then at that moment, you look around. Like, I'm already with the people I like. Peter, I don't like you that much, but I like you better than those people. So, Jesus... I like our people. Maybe we just keep it this size. I mean, sure, let's grow, but let's only grow, you know, with other people who are like us. Let's find more people who are like us, and we'll get those people. Let let those be the people who are from a different sheep pen. Let's get the other people. They're still like us, but they're they're just not followers yet. And Jesus is like, no, I have people who are not of this sheep pen at all, and I'm gonna bring them too. And they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, the reason that's so frustrating and uncomfortable is that means Jesus might reach out to someone who is a different kind of sheep from me. Have you ever thought of the phrase, the black sheep? Have you ever thought of that phrase and how for some reason the black sheep of the family is the one we hope doesn't show up at Thanksgiving? The black sheep of the family is the one who can't come to Thanksgiving because they're locked up. The black sheep of the family is the one that we have disowned a long time ago and I haven't seen that person in 30 years. You know, they're kind of the black sheep of the family, you know, whatever. A, it's so terrible that we use the metaphor of black to refer to the the outcast. That's bad enough. It's second bad that we would consider anyone to be an actual sheep but not welcome in the pen. Jesus says, I got other sheep. And when these other sheep show up, they might have some different colors than you. 
They might have some different identities. They might have some different labels than you. But our job is to be like Jesus because if we're the sheep in the pen, we can't be all huddled over on the one side and we'll be like, okay, we'll be the sheep that are of this particular kind and those can be the sheep that are of that particular kind. Jesus says they're going to hear my voice and they're going to follow me and there's going to be one shepherd and there's going to be one flock of sheep. It's just there's only one because there's only one shepherd, so there's only one flock of sheep. And that means if I am following the shepherd, I need to do the same thing the shepherd does with those other sheep. And if he's welcoming them, I need to welcome them too. I need to welcome all who are drawn to Jesus. Now let's be honest. There's some people who are drawn to church who aren't drawn to Jesus. There's some people who are drawn to Christianity who are not drawn to Jesus. There's some people who are drawn to aspects of the world around us and they're not drawn to Jesus. And I can't necessarily determine all of those things, but what I do know is that if Jesus speaks to a person and that person has an opportunity to respond to Jesus, then I will understand if they are drawn to Jesus or not. And so if they are drawn to Jesus, I want to welcome them. And if they're not drawn to Jesus, then I don't need to welcome them. I just need to keep being Jesus to them. Because see, here's the problem. It's the problem because it's so difficult. It's something I don't want to do. It's something I don't enjoy doing. If they are to be drawn to Jesus, they need to see Jesus. And they need to experience Jesus. And the only way we'll ever determine if they are drawn to Jesus is if we are being like Jesus to them. And and that's tough. I don't want to welcome them to begin with because they're already too different. Do you realize, do you realize if we lived this out, we would have to welcome people who have all kinds of identities that are confusing to us. Some of them might embrace an L for their identity. Some of them might be a a G or a B or a T or they might even be Q anon. See what I did there? Yeah, yeah. Because it's everybody. It's everybody out there who has some sort of identity that's different from Jesus, like you and me too. Every single one of our identities, if it's different from the following Jesus identity, is an identity that fades away like scales, falls away the more we follow the shepherd of our souls. And so, yeah, I need to welcome every single person who's drawn to Jesus, which means I need to be one of those people who's like Jesus to all these other people. Let me show you from Matthew chapter 9, a passage that I think is just incredibly challenging. Jesus looks... It says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw crowds, oh, this tears me up a little bit. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When I meet a person who's harassed, I never know about their harassment. What I know is how annoying they are to me. They've got harassment in their past, but they don't show that to me. 
What I see is how annoying they are. What I see is how petty they are. What I see is the chip on their shoulder. What I see is the snap when they're talking back to me about something. I don't see their harassment. I see their problems and I react against their problems. But Jesus is like, no, I see their harassment and I have compassion on them. Helpless people. The problem with helpless people is that if they know they're helpless, they're grabbing at straws for power wherever they can. They're looking for one thing or another to give them sort of some sense of power, personal power. And because they're helpless, what I see is not their helplessness. What I see is their attempt to gain something from me. They're attempting to get something from me or get something from the rest of the world. I see entitlement. I see someone who is just trying to game the system. I see a person who is trying to leverage power however they can leverage power. I don't see their helplessness. I see a person who's trying to gain power over me and I feel helpless. But Jesus doesn't feel that way. Jesus has compassion on them because when they're harassed and helpless, they just need a shepherd because it's the shepherd who's going to give them care. It's the shepherd who's going to help them no longer lack. And Jesus has compassion on them. Keep reading. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Bottom line, there are people out there who are harassed and helpless because they don't have a shepherd. But those people are not you. You have a good shepherd. You and I have a good shepherd. We are not harassed and helpless. We may have been harassed. We may have been helpless, but no longer anymore because we have a shepherd who is caring for us. We have a shepherd who will provide for us. And so we, unlike all those other people, can step into the place of Jesus and do the things that Jesus would do. Number one, I will be compassionate. I hope you join me in this. I will be compassionate because in the step of following Jesus and welcoming the people he's drawing to himself, it begins with me looking at them and being compassionate towards them. I don't know why they're harassed. I don't know why they're helpless. All I know is they need a shepherd. And if they had a shepherd, and if they had Jesus as their shepherd, everything in their life would change. And because I know the joy he has given me, because I know the life he has given me, because I know the words he has given me, I can give them Jesus out of my compassion and they might be drawn to it. And if they are, they will be transformed and they will experience the life and it will all be better and the world will be better because of this act of compassion of me bringing Jesus to them. Number one, I'll be compassionate to them. Number two, I'm going to do what Jesus commanded me to do. I'm going to pray for more shepherds. I'm going to be like, okay, we need to pray that there would be more shepherds in this world who can, help, who can act like shepherds towards these harassed and helpless people all around me. Every single time you go on Facebook and you see someone who's irritated at the world, or you go on Twitter and you see someone who's yelling about a hashtag, every single time, say to yourself, that's a person who's harassed and helpless. That's a person who needs a good shepherd. That's a person who, if they experience the shepherd at all, and if they have any relationship with me at all, it should be a relationship of giving them some Jesus giving them some love and encouraging them to love too. Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And I want to be one of those people who prays for the Father to send out workers into the harvest field. So let's do that. Let's be people of prayer saying, Jesus, would you send more shepherds into the harvest field? (laughs) There's a trick. 
because if you read the next verse, and you don't usually read the next verse because the people who edited the scripture text a long time ago, they put a, a period at the end of the previous sentence, and then they put a verse change between that sentence and the next sentence. And then they did something even more. They put a chapter division between those two. And so it's, it's hard for you and me to realize that when Jesus says, pray for more workers in the harvest field, it's hard for us to realize that the very next verse was the very next verse because there's all these divisions between it. But let me read you the very next verse. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness, and he sent them away. And he says, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God to people. Put the two sentences together. I want you to pray that the Father would send more workers out into the harvest field. Hey, guys, get out of here. (laughs) It's like you are your own answer to prayer. Pray for the Father to send and then lace up your shoes. The last piece is I want you and me to be people who say, I will step into shepherdship. I'm not going to wait around for someone else to be the shepherd that these other people need. I'm going to step into it. Jesus is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So I'm going to step right into shepherdship too because that's how he empowers me to live. I want to end not by giving you a whole bunch of like specific challenging take-it-home points or something like that. I do want you to receive Jesus' life. I do want you to follow his voice. I do want you to have compassion to the world and I do want you to do it all together But I want to leave you with this passage. An incredible passage from Hebrews says this. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Whoever wrote Hebrews is like, I want you to know the shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd, has resurrection power life in him. And I want him to empower you to walk that life out with him. I believe he will. We're going to close our time today with a song that just labels Jesus as our cornerstone and says, I want to put my entire trust, everything that I am, on him. And before we sing that final song, I want to invite you to spend a moment in reflection and prayer. If you want to jot something down on our connect card or fill out one of our online connect cards through the menu option on the side of the app, I want you to spend a moment and just ask yourself this question, what does it mean for me to fully receive the life of the shepherd, to follow him as my shepherd? Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, 
check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.